Hi everyone, just a note before we start this week's podcast, as most of you have probably guessed, we are recording these in our houses uh, during quarantine. This hasn't been a huge problem in the past, but this week was especially noisy and a little hard to edit out because Sonia's neighbor was playing piano the whole time and it becomes really obvious when you cut into music. Uh, The piano is really lovely, but there are some other sounds that were hard to edit out, and so we really hope that you guys listen all the way through because I think this episode is pretty important. Also, just a content warning, around the 45 minute mark, we do start talking about residential and industrial schools and the violence against children that happened in those facilities. So if you want to skip that, that's totally understandable. It's from about the 45 minute mark to about the one hour and 10 minute mark. We do think that this history is super important, but also understand that especially for First Nations and Indigenous people, this can be really triggering. So if that doesn't feel safe for you, that's where that discussion is happening. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. And I'm Devin, and I have a master's in American history and indigenous studies. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that explores the ritualized year, folklore, and history. This week's topic is back to school, what up? which is going to be a little different this year. <laughs> Very different. But yeah, so this week we're going to be talking about uh, the U.S. and Canadian school systems specifically and sort of how this emerges from about the 17th and 18th centuries until the present, and sort of how we got to where we are today. Yeah. So why don't we actually just start with this whole notion of, like, going back to school? Like, I know there's the whole myth about, like, ah, like, the kids got a break in the summer to work on the farm, but that (laughs) seems kind of off, given that, you know, most farm work would be in the spring and in the fall. So, do you want to talk about why we're even going back to school in the fall? Uh, sure, yeah. So, um, if you actually look at in rural communities and early schooling, uh, the summer had about as much enrollment and number of classes as they did in the winter and the times when students were older students were actually taken out of school to work on farms. It was the spring and fall when you were planting and harvesting. So, meh. Uh, The reason that the modern school system is sort of set up around this big empty space in the summer uh, is because of rich people in cities. Uh, (laughs) Where, like, the the school systems really sort of originated in these urban settings. And you have this practice of, like, rich people going to summer somewhere, you know? We're gonna get out of the city and go to the Hamptons or wherever it is that rich people go 
and spend the summer, you know, somewhere else. And as, like, the... You got into, like, a more industrialized America. Um, oh, I hear the piano now. Yeah, uh, apologies to any of our listeners. I live next to, uh, I I think, a classical pianist. I've never actually met this person, but there is a daily uh, piano concert that I can hear through the wall. So if you hear some of that, just count yourself lucky. You get some free music out of the deal, and it's very soothing and nice. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so anyway, back to what I was saying. Um... The school systems really originated, like, the the system of schooling originated in these urban settings, and the people who were running the schools just didn't feel like it was worth it if most of the students weren't going to be there. So around major holidays like Christmas and stuff, they would just close the school because so many students weren't going to be there anyway. And then as, uh, you know, the summers would come around and a bunch of students, the wealthier students would leave, Um, and then as the American society became more and more industrialized and you had this larger middle class that was also able to vacation, um, people, you know, more and more, a larger and larger percentage of students would leave for at least part of the summer, and so it was like, why bother? Um, And once you do that, you know, parents then, but once you do it once, parents tend to, like, count on it. Like, oh, well, we can go and do this because last year they didn't have school at this time. And it's really hard to, like, then get back to a, like, year-round school concept. Um, So it's just sort of become the practice, even though a lot of education experts are like, hey, it's better to not have a giant months-long break for young minds it's better to like keep them stimulated but we all expect a summer vacation so that's what we get yeah i remember when i was in high school there was um the idea was floated that we would uh that uh one of the years we would go back to school before labor Mm day and i i think literally everyone kept their kids home through that weekend and didn't send them until you know, until after Labor Day, because they were like, absolutely not. Like, no. We, you, there are not that many long weekends in the year. We are going to do whatever we had planned for the long weekend, and then we'll send the kids yeah. back. So, like, it is this really deeply ingrained, like, thing where it's like you have your your summer, you know, kids go to summer camp, or they go you know, spend time with relatives or just, like, stay at home and hang out. And then, you know, there's this, like, September, we go back to school and, like, all the kind of nostalgia, I think, that comes up around that as well. Like, you know, I I still want to go out. You know, there's a part of me that's like, go, get, get a new backpack. Get yourself a nice, shiny new lunchbox. I want crayons in a nice, neat row. <laughs> I I did just order a uh, a new planner and some like fancy pens because I was like, oh, ah, it's fall. This is the time to like restart my life. Uh, just because I've been so yeah. ingrained by spending so much time in school, <laughs> you know, through grad school. It's just my whole life has been school. Same. 
<laughs> yeah, that's my strategy is to just just never leave school. <laughs> I'm just staying here forever. Uh, I seems to be working out okay so far. I have not managed that yet, but that's fine and valid. <laughs> Everyone has a different life strategy. I'm just I'm just floating it as a possibility <laughs> that you know. You can just stay in education forever. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's a lie. I do have to finish my PhD at some point, but it, it is not this day. <laughs> what do we say to graduate degrees? Right. Not today. <laughs> <gasps> All right, so. Let's now now that we've waxed poetic about our our nostalgia for you know going back to school mm-hmm. why don't we kind of have a talk about education and how how like formal schooling becomes a thing in North America Yeah so um schooling in the way that we think about it now is really a product of the early 20th century, late 19th century. Um, But there were schools in North America, like, sort of as soon as there were, was, like, real settlement, right? So the the mid-1600s, when you get, like, you know, it it really came with all the Puritans, <laughs> is is what we're talking about. Uh, I mean, listen, they even a even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> um, so the the Puritans, when you look at you know Massachusetts Bay and New Haven and um, Plymouth. Uh, when you look at these early colonies, they really prided themselves on being a literate society. They kept meticulous records, written records. Um, and from the very sort of, you know, once the colonies had been established and society had sort of been established, they had um, education laws. You know, it, you yeah. had to, children had to be taught how to read. Huh, I did not yeah, know this. Yeah, so it was it was really about because the Puritans had so you can see this distinction really between New England and the southern really agrarian colonies really early because um the Anglican church was the major church in the south and mm-hmm. these the the Puritans were and like Calvinists and all that was what was sort of happening in the North and in New England in particular. And it was really important in this Puritan and Calvinist society that you be able to read the scriptures yourself. And it was still something that was encouraged in Anglican society, but having the, uh, an educated pastor was what was really more important. So yeah, right. so being taught to read was like if you did not teach your children how to read, um, they you would be determined to be unfit to care for them. 
um, late, right. and the ch- child would be taken away and put into an apprenticeship. And because they normally saw, like, the, the lack of education, the lack of time given to education as a marker of, like, you cannot provide for the child. Um, so it was yeah. considered, like, this part of, of poverty. And since they're, like, Puritans and Calvinists, this idea that, like, you're reaping what you sow... You know, so you're like, if you're poor, clearly yeah, you've, it's, it's you've done fault. something wrong. You know, you shouldn't be overly wealthy, but you should have enough to, you know, provide for your family if you're doing God's work, right? So um, right. the children that were not taught to read were, were taken and put in, into apprenticeships, and apprenticeships had specific rules about education for children specific and when we talk about children were mostly that meant male children but for reading also girls had to learn how to read and something that was like is also really specific to this time period is that reading and writing are two different skills they were taught separately so that's why you get like the three r's reading writing and arithmetic because you were taught how to read first and that was all taught orally so you would be tested on reading out loud Um, and as long as you could read out loud then it was like okay you have learned how to read Um, and then you would learn how to write and writing was all about penmanship not necessarily like how well you could compose a sentence it was like how well you could basically write letters and then ciphering was like basic arithmetic and so you would um, everyone would have to be taught how to read was the law Mm -hmm. and then boys would also have to be taught how to write and this was seen as like a like not part of basic education basic education was just reading and then this was like a high skill that could only be taught by like a master so a a man would have to teach writing and um and that was required for boys because you know, if they wanted to go on to clerk or be a secretary or anything like that, they needed to have excellent penmanship. But also, even if they were going to be farmers or tradesmen, they would have to keep books and be able to write, you know, postings about surplus goods and things like that. So they would need to be able to write. And then basic ciphering was also taught you know, so that they could, again, keep books and things like that. But the arithmetic wasn't always required in education that came later. Um, and around the time it started being universally required in New England that boys be taught, again, what was called ciphering or basic arithmetic, that was when more people were starting to consider it important for girls to be taught how to write as well. Yeah, I think I think we tend to take for granted the ability to write, you know, yeah. like that's, it, it's something that we learn so young now and like, it's so universal, but it, it really is a skill like those kinds of, you know, like the, the fine motor skills to be able to do that. Like I'm, I'm taking it a little bit out of North America right now and out of this time period, but like, you know, there's the famous like Charlemagne, uh, he could read, but he could not write. Yeah. Like he was, you know, like, because it, and there's, there is, like, this historical record about how, like, 
you know, they, they were saying like he was, he even into his old age would like really try to, uh, to write things out, but just, you know, it, the, like, even with that effort, it was very, very difficult to do that. So I think it's, you know, I yeah. think there's something to and that like, of, like, separating reading and writing. Yeah, and you can really look at, I mean, there's things about how the textbooks for both of these skills were created that also feeds into this system. So creating the basic primers for learning how to read and having a Bible to learn how to read. These books were widely available to almost everyone in North America, and they were being printed in North America. Yeah. But the penmanship books that a master would have to teach people how to write were a lot harder because you would need to have engraved letters for creating, for printing script that... Right often had to be like carved by the ma- by master penmen themselves yeah and so they were really really expensive to produce and so much fewer people had these books and it was thought that like you couldn't learn how to write from the book even though essentially what the masters were doing was having you copy from the book everything yeah. was rote memorization yeah. You it wasn't expected that you could and this was thought of as like a high skill, right? You know, coming from this idea that you had scribes. Yeah, and I think it is worth pointing out that like at at this point, right? Like I mean you you mentioned rote memorization, like writing things out, right? Mm-hmm. Like th- this isn't a situation where people are you know doing like critical thinking or argumentation necessarily as a as a skill the point is that like here is knowledge and you have to learn this skill yeah and it's you have these different ideas of what what learning is and like so when we look as historians back at trying to study and determine who is literate at these times right you a lot of people look at who can sign their name as a determining determiner of like literacy. But because a lot of people were being taught to read, but not to write, you know, you have a lot of people who can't fully sign their name, but can read and various levels of literacy in and of itself. So somebody who is taught to read, but not to write often has a a struggle reading new material. So they might be really good at reading say the bible or the psalms or things that they're encountering every day because they hear it so much that it's a lot easier to recognize the words on the page and they might be able to read you know like posters and things that are put up missives that are put up on town like on the meeting house or things like that but probably wouldn't be able to like get a new novel and read it for themselves and really have like reading comprehension in the way that we think about yeah. it now, because they're not being taught to engage with the text in the way that when you're taught to read and write at the same time, you are. So, like, full literacy, even among these people who are all, like, supposedly universally taught to read and tested on their reading by reading the Bible, like, probably don't have the level of literacy that we that would be expected of somebody to, like, like now, you know? Right. And there's, like, this... Yeah, and I, I mean, that makes sense 
in in a way because it's like how how available were books going to be really yeah you know like aside from the bible like what i mean i'm not trying to say like no we should like you know i i think it is just interesting how like different um how like yeah just like how differently we view literacy and like what's the purpose of it and yeah, and that's the thing. So the purpose at this period of learning how to read was to make good Christians. Yes. Right? Yeah. So in this period, you have the... In, like, English North America, you have this very also gendered idea of teaching. Right. So reading was supposed to be taught at home by the mother mm-hmm. generally because reading was seen as like a low skill task yeah and so women could teach it and teaching your children how to read was this practice of good christian motherhood because you're you're showing them the bible and engaging with the bible right. and those things and writing and maths were you know a, a high skill task and so those you would have to go to a school to learn and so they did have these schools set up for boys who could already read you know you would be tested on like reading how far into like reading the scriptures you were and um your ability to read the scriptures and then they would take you in to like perfect your reading and teach writing and ciphering um and so that was sort of how how schools were done and all of these schools obviously you had to pay to attend right so that was sort of the system that was happening in english north america the in french north america specifically in quebec it was a little bit different um, because so much of society was controlled by the catholic church because quebec was established i mean as a french colony but also specifically as like a catholic colony and as like a a home base for catholic missionaries in north america so the schools that you have are set up by priests and or by nuns and so you would learn how to read from these like schools that were run by nuns and then they had all they had established like classical colleges in the style that would have existed in Europe where you would you know learn Greek and Latin and reading and writing and argumentation in a way that would prepare you for becoming a priest or going on to study the to read the law and like apprentice as a lawyer or a politician or something like that you know it was a a stepping stone right. to seminary essentially to then, like, continue spreading Catholicism throughout right. North America. Um, that was the that was the goal of that in the 17th century, like, New France. And then as you get into English North America, as you get to the 18th century, and especially, like, the later 18th century... Um, you start having more and more women teaching children who are not theirs, you know, as the towns sort of expand and there's more 
like specification of jobs and things like that you know like where yeah. more people have like a trade or something school games became a thing where before children went to school they would go to you know some married woman's house where she would teach them how to read and like the basics of yeah. the bible it was essentially like kind of like a sunday school you know to teach reading um, because reading was, again, something yeah. that women could do. <laughs> um, and then as you get into sort of, like, the the New Republic, right, with the War of Independence, you have this idea of Republican motherhood. So more and more women right. are taught how to write as well and how to do arithmetic because the idea was that th- that would make them better mothers to sons who were then going to be participating in this new democracy so these enlightenment ideals of like education and reason and democracy are you know sort of seep into the the rest of society so more and more girls are sent to school and are educated because that will make them better mothers to future citizens and that like we needed this great base of citizens to you know run the country and that didn't include women right you know we just needed them to raise and do the early education for these new citizens and a sort of similar thing happens in late 18th century quebec as well but in a, a kind of different vein right so By the late 18th century, Quebec is now part of English, not English, but like Canada. You know, it's it's part of this English colony. They had been been conquered, conquered by England. And so there was this idea that they had to educate the women to make better French Catholic families. You know, so like any sort of education was again done through the church because it was about um, preserving this French Catholic society in Quebec in the face of the very Anglo New America and then like Anglo Canada and right. the state that was becoming and like, Canada. By this point, state. I mean, to so my there was knowledge there was about that. it, like. You know, you kind of have this, like, imper- like Canada as part of the British Empire already. Like, it's... Yes. So, so yeah. So, the Anglo... The, the English-speaking Canada, Anglo-Canada, was... They yes. were not Canadians. They yes. were British subjects. I just Canadians wanted to... were French. Um, because there had been, for, for many for almost a full century just sort of a disconnect between Quebec and France like France was Quebec wasn't producing enough or like and it was just France was continuously at war they were just like relatively uninterested in supporting new France so Quebec had sort of become its own society in and of itself they were French Canadians the people of the St. Lawrence and so that's where the term Canadian was really, at this point in time, referred to French Quebecers and 
the English speakers of Canada were British. Yes. They were British colonial speakers. I just wanted to, Uh, yeah. And that's how Americans thought of themselves as, like, you know, people from the United States thought of themselves that way too. Until, right, the revolution, the war for independence, um, then they became, well, eventually they became American. Yeah. Well, that's that's another topic for another that time. Was a, but. That yeah, the the use of the term American was is a whole long history. So initially they were Colombians and all sorts of other things. Like it it was a <laughs> my people have a strange linguistic oh, don't, history. Don't we all, Devin? Um <laughs> uh but so coming out of the 18th century, going into the 19th century, right in the mid 19th century, you get you know rapid industrialization, people moving to cities, and that's when you get this common school movement. Yes, right. So that comes out of this idea of this Republican motherhood, and out of the these imperial ideas in English Canada that in order to have functioning citizens and like good imperial British citizens who are going to serve the empire or serve the the new democracy of America they yes. need to be educated and so um, specifically in cities but eventually in more rural areas as well you get this common school movement um, where all children would go to school through about grade eight. And this is where you get the like idea of the one-room schoolhouse, where um, these ideas sort of came out of Germany um, and made their way into like English society and through to North America, uh, where you have like the teacher who teaches mostly the older students and then uses the older students to teach younger students, um, all in sort of this one room. Um, and that then in the late 19th century is really taken by um, the progressive movement as oh if we if we educate people it'll you know lift them out of poverty and you have all these progressive women like you know trying to educate set up schools next to factories to and as you get, more child labor laws children aren't able to be in the factories where their parents are and so somebody needs to like be watching them and these progressive women set up these charity schools to to educate children and make better better citizens it was really about educating people for their own yeah and and that's you know there that was sort of the language of it. it was it was it's it's weird and like good but also very kind of like condescending patronizing yeah yes Yes. like the progressive movement was so condescending like oh these poor people we must lift them out of poverty with yeah you know it's whatever yeah and 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 this idea with our our charity you know oh like education is going to be this great leveler when like in the you know whereas it it is this very patronizing condescending thing because it's like it yes obviously i'm all for education but like it 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 doesn't yeah. um it's it it's not a great leveler like at the end of the day like if you're born into poverty it is much harder to you know like get ahead in life i 
you know, like it, it doesn't suddenly fix and everything. What, what kind of yeah, education exactly. are you going? The other thing is like, what kind of education are you going to get? Because the, the common schools that were being set up were not going to teach the same things that the, yeah, sorry. I are you okay? Something. <laughs> um, so the other thing is like, what, what kind of education are you going to get? Because the schools, these common schools that children of factory workers and farmers are going to be going to are not going to teach the same things that elite private schools or the classical colleges are going to be teaching. You know, it's not going to be teaching the things to get you to a university. It's going to be teaching the sort of rudiments of government the ideas that you should have about your country, religion, basic reading, basic writing, basic maths, and that's that's what you're going to get. So it's this, and like for girls, you know, you'd get like homemaking skills as well, probably. Especially if you went to one of these like progressive schools, they would they would teach you how to to care for children and you know yeah. the basics of nutrition and things like that as like and hygiene you know it was like this this we they're always going to be poor but we can make them less <laughs> gross essentially not like like that's really what it was like the progressives are so weird and like that it's the responsibility of rich people like to know what to do with money like it wasn't that people shouldn't be you know rockefeller rich just that rockefeller should because obviously he is so wise that's why he made all of this money he should have the the wisdom to know how to use his money to better all of society like that was this very progressive i mean like there's this bizarre uh, essentially like a manifesto that Andrew Carnegie wrote about how like poor people are always going to be poor and stupid and that like if you're if you're able to lift yourself out of poverty then clearly you're a genius and if you have a lot of money then like clearly you you earned it even though like the progressive era was also just like a period of horrifying exploitation of workers so the rich people aren't really earning yeah anything. I mean that's a <laughs> whatever um but like so then that that is clearly a testament to how brilliant these people are and that they have to be the geniuses of society to help all of society and that's why you have like carnegie libraries and universities and yeah. like rockefeller libraries and these things like it was what you were supposed to do with your money was to give it back to society so that like you know if Carnegie in this article's like specific thing is about libraries and like public services like that so that if there is the good poor person who's going to you know stop drinking and stop going to the bars and instead go and educate himself at the library so he can you know learn how to <laughs> not be so poor or whatever like it's really it's really weird it's a really weird yeah like, I mean to, to be clear I think it's um, you know um <laughs> It, it would be, it's, it's slightly better than, like, Jeff Bezos, <laughs> you know? Yeah, because at least, at yeah, least like, there is a library. Yeah, like, he still got a library out of the deal, I mean, you know. 
Yeah. To, so and it's not so that's great, the, but like that's the somehow better than what we're dealing with now. <laughs> yeah. So that's the common school movement. Um, you don't to go back to the like bit of of Canada that's different um, from what's happening in the states because like the the English Canadian models sort of follow the U.S., right? With maybe a little bit more English influence because they are more explicitly, like, religious Protestant yeah, and like there's being established yeah. in English Canada than in the U.S. where it was supposed to be, like, not necessarily secular because everything is very waspy in the States as well, but it it's this... And it's a similar common school movement. At Set 4 in Quebec, where they explicitly defund the what was initially a public school movement um, to make sure that all of the schools are these Catholic schools. And there actually is a crisis of education at one point in time where there was no funding in the mid-19th century, the 1860s, I think, where there was no money for schools the the provincial government hadn't insured they hadn't written a new school bill and so there was no money being sent to teachers and so these teachers weren't being paid and so the boys weren't getting educated um and so then outside of these schools that were set up by nuns um there wasn't there wasn't really education for all there wasn't french catholic education for everyone there were a lot of these schools for girls that were set up by nuns and so you have a lot of french canadian women who can read and right. do maths and, and things like that and there's more of a crisis for the like lower classes of french canadian men who weren't the the schools had shut down the the male teachers weren't being paid and so they had left um those those schools those men weren't getting the higher education outside right. of learning to read and stuff at home um unless you were wealthy enough to go attend a, a, a classical college and or seminary so there is this very distinct hierarchy of education amongst french canadian men uh, whereas women were not going to go they weren't allowed to put in the classical colleges um until the late eight the very late 1800s when um the university of laval set up a program for women um and there was so there was a one college established for women so that they could go to this university where oh that's the other thing for anybody listening in the states the term college in canada is used in the british way where a, a college is where you go before university if you do that like uh, it's not it's spe- specifically yes. in french in french canada the the college is is preparatory yeah. and then for in university. english canada College like and university are like two different things. Like college is like hands yeah, on. So yeah, in like English in English Canada, more like career job training 
It's a, it's like trade school or a um, a community college in the states. Oh, okay, yeah, what that would be. Whereas college, college, so there's community college and or trade school, and then there's college, which gives you a four year degree. So those are yeah. all colleges in the U.S. In Canada, in English Canada, the college is just the trade school or what we would call a community college, and then there's university. It's, yeah. And then in French Canada, college is closer to like what they call a cégep now. So you go and do two years after high school before you go to university. Yeah. Anyway, those are all terms that I should have clarified at the beginning of this for people in the US. Um, so, yeah. So, women until the late. 1800s in Quebec weren't able to go to these colleges and so they weren't able to go to university so but they were getting more of like a standard primary education uh, than a lot of the working class men were yeah and that that again changes with confederation and the the federal like establishing federal laws uh, around education and that like schools have to exist. So the schools are run by provinces with confederation in Canada, but there are, there's an established expectation of like providing primary schools. And so like in Quebec, they are still run, they are still Catholic schools and there's this huge (laughs) crisis around whether or not there's going to be French Catholic schools in the other English, more English-speaking provinces, and it becomes like this massive political crisis around whether or not the Canadian federal state will continue to exist, or if there's going to be like a massive sovereigntist movement in Quebec, and it's all centered around, you know, whether or not... <laughs> Ontario is going to provide state-funded French Catholic and schools. Fun fact: it's a whole thing. They still do. We don't need to get into it. They do. They did. It, that was a. It was a con- a concession that then became like this huge issue again with World War One and whether or not they were going to continue to fund these schools when they should be funding. Yeah, it's, it's a whole thing, but yeah, fun fact: Ontario <laughs> and I think a few other provinces still do have. Um, both uh, French and English uh, public schools and French and English Catholic schools. Yeah. And again, difference from the US, the Catholic schools are funded. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I meant, like, as a. Uh, yeah, like, that those are all publicly funded. That those are all publicly funded yeah. options. Like, you don't have to pay to go to any of them. You just go to your designated school. Yeah. Whereas in the U.S. in the 20th century, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses made sure that there were no publicly funded religious education because in the U.S. Constitution, the state cannot support one religion over any other. And so that's why you don't, you no longer have like prayer in school and and religious education funded by the state. Anyway, um, getting back to the the early 20th century, 
Um, so now we've moved out of this progressive movement and the common schools, but they're still not like high school in the way that we think of it now. Um, there were a few high schools throughout English North America, but they were really, really small. And so like in the early 1910s, about 10% of people had a high school education. But from 1910 to 1930, you have in the U.S. specifically, followed closely by Canada, you have the what's called the high school movement. Um, and it's the largest and fastest growth of public secondary education in history. And it happens in the U.S. about 20 to 50 years sooner than the rest of the world. So there's this just massive and very fast movement to establish secondary schools so to establish high schools so all education after right eighth grade essentially so most people went to school through eighth grade and then they would stop and go to work now you have this movement to get secondary education and this was a sort of startling development for how quickly it is because it, for those four years of secondary education, it costs as much as the entire common school right. education for each student, right? So you have eight years of primary education that costs as much as just those four years yeah. of secondary education. So this is a massive expenditure. And the reason that they were able to sort of get everyone on board with funding these public schools, these public high schools, is because of the mass industrialization. So you have all of this industrialization and just rapid progression of technology. So this is the era of radio and automobile and all of the factories that are building all of these things. And you need skilled workers who understand you know, the basics of technology and science and math to be able to build all of these things. So it's called, um, the 20th century is called the human capital century in discussions of like using social capital for education because the argument was no longer about, you know, creating good citizens for secondary education, right? That's still the argument for primary education. But for, for secondary education, it's really about we need to have educated workers to create, continue creating all of this technology and advancing us into the, the 20th century that's going to be yes. like the century of the future. And I, I think um, it's, I mean, just as an aside, I think it is, um, you know, kind of when when there are these debates going on now about like, okay, we need to make university or like college like more accessible to people and how do we... How do we do that? And, you know, these these ideas of, hey, maybe we should just, like, make it free for anyone who wants to and is able to go. And, like, mm-hmm. I, I think it is interesting to look back on this period to see, like, you know, these kind of similar ideas, like, around high school that it's, like... Yeah, that it's about, yeah. it's about educating workers rather yeah, than and, education Yeah, and I also think it's sake. just kind of, like... You know, remembering that, like, we take, go like, we take going to high school for granted. That, like, of course the state will pay for yeah. me to go to high school. When, like, until relatively recently, that would not have been the case at all. Like, 
Yeah, so this was this was like a rapid shift, right? So you have 10% yeah. of people have a high school education in 1910. By yeah, 1930, like, it's, it's 50%. Nuts. And it only continues to grow from there. Uh, even, even through the Great Depression, um, through World War II, you have people consistently building schools in places where they weren't uh, and just investing massive amounts of public capital into building these schools and educating children. And it really leads to what our, our modern 20th century idea of North America, because you have World War II happen, right? So all of these young men who are being shipped overseas or participated in like the, the factories and all these things that we have you know happens in world war ii they're all going into that yeah. with a high school education and so when you come back and the u.s implements the gi bill so free university for those or you know trade school or community college for people who served that was only possible because of the high school movement because so many people had already had the secondary education they're able to get these post-secondary educations and then when they have these these free or very very cheap um, college degrees that creates this the massive number of white collar workers that you see in the 1950s that funds the you know suburbanization the funds the you know massive automobile and single family home purchases that you see in the 1950s that create this idea of what America is and this massive boom in right. economic power that the United States in particular has followed closely by Canada afterwards you know so you have like that's this high school movement into the GI Bill is a major part of what funds us along with, you know, the U.S. not being completely yeah. destroyed in the way that Europe was in World War II and, be, you know, having funded the, the allies and, like, producing all of these factories to create um, defense products, you know, weapons and stuff for World War II that are later, you know, converted into factories for consumer products you know along with that you have this educated population like the at the time the best educated population in the world and canada is you know basing uh, english canada is basing its education system off of off of the the states as well and so you know progressing on a on a similar trajectory yeah yeah so it's it's and, and i mean canada has a little of a different situation coming out of world war ii because of their ties to, to britain and being part of this empire that is irrevocably changed by world war ii um so they're dealing with some a little bit of a different economic status but yeah it's a similar movement in education in canada and obviously still has canada still has uh mostly state-funded university as well so well yeah i mean it's <laughs> It's not like fully state funded, but it's definitely kept. Oh, yeah, but I oh, mean, yeah. in, in like, comparison, in comparison to, the, to the U.S., to the U.S. Yes, there's a lot more. Um, there, there's a lot more done in line to it's like to keep the prices 
you know, somewhat like something resembling reasonable, and like there is a lot more, um, yeah, like government grants and you know, low interest loans available as compared to a lot of places in the US. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So, so that's the sort of like overarching theme of education in North America. But underneath this, which like, it all seems okay, um, but this is also specifically from this very white Anglo-Protestant idea of like society right that it's good to go off and get this education even if it is a christian education you know and to learn how to be a good citizen of the united states or canada or quebec you know whatever but under running underneath that we have this other system of schooling um happening at the same time and this comes out of missionary schools in indigenous nations yes right yeah (laughs) if you're in canada especially because there's been so much conversation about this in canada you're gonna know where i'm going with this so we're gonna talk about residential schools (laughs) so particularly in uh on the east coast like sort of the appalachian kind of area from the end of the 18th century you have missionary schools established in indigenous nations right there's this big push to make sure that uh, indigenous people even if you're teaching them in an indigenous language can learn how to read so uh, there's a lot of like transcribing indigenous languages into the roman alphabet which doesn't always work out great um to ensure that indigenous people can read the bible (laughs) (laughs) Um, this is sort of what pushes uh, Sequoia to to create the Cherokee syllabary which is actually way more effective at creating a literate population in Cherokee Nation than the transliteration into the um, Latin alphabet is once the syllabary is created right? if you speak Cherokee you can learn how, if you already speak Cherokee you can theoretically learn how to read from the syllabary in like three days and once the Cherokee Nation itself starts establishing schools to teach people the syllabary um, they reach like 95% literacy in like five years it's insane a similar thing happens in Hawaii where it is transliterated into the the Latin alphabet but because of the way that the Hawaiian language works like literacy just takes off super quickly and actually writing in the Hawaiian language becomes this really fascinating uh, means of resisting American imperialism. But uh, outside of these examples of, you know, like sort of empowering indigenous culture, uh, mostly the missionary schools are used to teach English, force people to become Christians because you couldn't attend the school if you were going to continue to practice an indigenous religion. And eventually they become these boarding schools called in the States. And initially when they're set up, uh, this is, they're called industrial schools. Um, and they're these boarding schools where the, what's called the office of Indian affairs in the U S 
requires the indigenous nations as they're being sort of moved and pushed off their land and pushed into land that's not as arable in order to receive government assistance uh, for the nation the children have to attend these industrial schools where the children are going to be taught how to be you know proper quote-unquote civilized people Uh, it's super screwed up and like so because the nations are being undermined systematically by the american state they need the government assistance because you know like for example the cherokee nations moved to oklahoma uh that we've talked about before um the in the plains uh in the mid-19th century there's what uh are still known as the indian wars are going on where um the u.s army is actively combating indigenous people in order to take their land and killing off wild food sources so the utter decimation of the buffalo population in the great plains leads to um, indigenous dependency on the american state and you know a sort of desperation to be able to feed their children and the industrial schools are a way to make sure that your children will be fed as opposed to like sort of watching a generation starve to death on reservations, which was incredibly common. And so these industrial schools are set up and in Canada, the first prime minister, Johnny McDonald sends a journalist. I can't remember his name to go and research what the Americans are doing with their indigenous people and he comes back and talks about these industrial schools and that's when um, McDonald sets up the residential school system in Canada Um, and they're essentially the same thing though the the industrial schools in the states are only sort of vaguely overseen by the Office of Indian Affairs where in Canada it is explicitly state-run schools um, and what happens at these schools is uh, aggressive assimilation. So in both the United States and English Canada, the children are taken from their parents at a very young age. Uh, their hair is cut. They are not allowed to wear their traditional clothing. They're not allowed to speak their language. Um, and they're not allowed to practice their religion or traditions or eat their traditional foods, anything that resembles the life that they were leading in their own nation before is completely stripped away from them. And because they're so young, often children completely, and they stay there until they're adults, they're completely divorced from their culture. And it is discussed now in an indigenous study circles and in most of North American history as a a cultural genocide and just horrifyingly traumatic. Um, These schools are also like particularly abusive and use corporal punishment long after most American schools have decided that that's not, you know, an effective or moral way of teaching children. They're also used for like scientific testing in really horrible ways the children there was one in particular in the u.s where 
there was a university and government funded study of what starvation does to early development in like you know studying the brain and so they systematically starved children at these residential schools to see what happened to them and like how it affected their behavior and their ability to learn um and these schools are systematically underfunded especially in canada they are not like kept warm enough um yeah that's and which is like a obviously a, a problem, problem in Canada you. where it's very very cold. Um, so they like they're you know not get the the part the parts of the schools where the children live um, do not have enough fuel to keep fires going all day, um, which you have to have, and they're systematically underfunded in terms of like getting food. So children were often you know any time they were allowed outside for eating anything they could find, sometimes poisoning themselves with it in a, an attempt to to sustain themselves. Um, also, like, children would just would run away and try and find their way back home and would sometimes succumb to exposure. But if they did make it back, um, the state would come after them and punish them and punish the parents if the parents didn't immediately return them to the schools. Um, And in both the U.S. and Canada, parents on reserves would be deemed unfit to care for their children regardless of any actual circumstances. And the children would become wards of the state and would not, like, the parents would never be told where the child was being taken or given any information about these children. So just complete break in family familial connections. And when the children were old enough to, to graduate and leave these facilities, if they lived long enough to graduate and leave the facility, Um, they would not be given any information about who their parents were or where to find them or where they came from or anything like that. So it's just like an absolute horror and not just cultural genocide because so, because these schools were so systematically underfunded and the children were treated so horribly, a huge portion of students at these schools in the u.s and in canada died you know they would get sick or you know not be fed enough and there are huge cemeteries at these the sites where these schools were um and so it it's a, a literal genocide they these schools functioned essentially as like concentration camps and labor camps. The children would be doing unpaid labor a lot of the time. Um, in Canada, they were used for like lumber as well. Like these children would be like, you know, preparing lumber to be shipped places. It's utterly bizarre and horrifying. Um, and this lasted well into the late 20th century. So there are people who are like my parents' age in the U.S. and Canada? They they were shut down. Yeah, I think Canada's weren't shut down US until like the mid nineteen nineties. Um, so I mean, they're 
in the U.S., there are people who are like my parents' age who were in residential schools. In Canada, it's, you know, much younger generations are also victims of residential schools. And it is a horrible black mark on the history of the whole continent. Um, They were absolutely just tools of state-sanctioned violence. Yeah, and Um, I... Well, yeah, and I I also wanted to um, (laughs) say that the other... Another, like, you know, as we're talking about education, it's also the fact that, you know, kind of covering up how this all happened and, like, the history behind all of this is still very actively a thing. Like, it wasn't until a few years ago that residential schools were um, actually formally put into the Ontario curriculum as as a history thing so like you grow yeah and they are they're not talked about in yeah like we standard education i mean obviously i can't either speak for every single school in canada but like i had it presented to me when i was going through like i guess maybe like grade six or grade seven as like you know kind of this like oh yeah, they set up boarding schools and indigenous children went to these boarding schools and sometimes, you know, bad things happened and there was abuse, but like overall it was like just a boarding school. And then, you know, like as as an like as you get older and you yeah. go and read uh, uh, like actual other sources of what was really happening, you're like, how yeah just like the and i think this kind of leads into what what we were talking about before this is like how every education system does you know have a, a you know kind of political and sociocultural like agendas and that's you know, they all have these, to a certain degree, like, indoctrination ideas in them. <laughs> yeah, so that was what, that was where I was going to go with, like, conclusion, concluding this, this discussion. Um, because I think that talking about specifically the assimilation aspects of residential schools really brings us back to what we were talking about with the beginning of schooling in North America, um, with how creating schools and a school system was very much, especially like early education, was very much about creating the kind of citizen that you wanted in the country. And that even to this to this day, that's how especially elementary education works. It's about presenting the ideas of the nation right. that the nation wants to like perpetuate. So, right, we weren't, if we were taught about residential schools at all, it was just that they were boarding schools that the state yeah. set up. Uh, 
to help indigenous people and and that was only if there was any acknowledgement of indigenous people existing you know yeah after 1850 at all there was no talk talk about like the american indian movement or wounded knee or anything like that when i was in school in north carolina but the especially in the u.s you have early history education is about how great the u.s was how great the constitution is how every part of american history is moving toward more freedom and happiness and equality as you go along this wonderful path toward you know modern america and how great and excellent how it's the best country in the world you know like america was founded and everything was great but then we realized that like slavery wasn't great so we had a civil war about it and then people were still kind of we solved racism there was a civil rights movement and everything was fixed and it's like there is so yeah yeah there's just so much that's left out of that and the the idea of who is an American, what Americans look like, all those things. And you see that in Canada as well, throughout the the history of education in Quebec. Um I don't I don't know as much about English Canada. I know in so the early school system in English Canada was about creating the, you know, good British imperial subjects and in Quebec it was these good French Catholics who believed in a a French nation in North America so the the nationhood of Quebec um and like really like making sure that that was part of the the elementary education that like you're going to be educated in French you're going to be educated at Catholic school and like that specific indoctrination and in the in the u.s it's very much this these anglo-protestant values and the idea of what the american democracy is and that any critique of you know the constitution or how the american state is established yeah is not valid right so that that cultural indoctrination and ensuring that like all of the schools are set up in this very systematic way there's you know that idea that like schools are set up the way that they are modern schools are set up with the bell system and all these things to mimic factory work and it's really that's not that's not it it's not to make submissive factory workers it's to make citizens who are okay like who are taught that they have freedom but are also indoctrinated in this idea of respecting authority because it is authority right so that's how the school is set up and it was set up to mirror um to mirror the patriarchal family and then outside of that to mirror the patriarchal church and outside of that to mirror the patriarchal nation. So you have the school and the family, the church and the nation, and all of them are the levels of authority within the state that we want to perpetuate and keep going. And so like if you look at the history and if you look at the 
what people have expressly said in establishing all of these things, if you look at the records, it's, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, we're going to educate girls so that they can teach their sons. And we want to educate the sons so that they can be good citizens. And by good citizens, we mean people who are members of this particular church and the members of this particular church are going to support this state and this vision of the state that we have. And like, it's expressly laid out in founding documents for all of these levels of society. Um, and then to look at the most extreme examples of this in residential schools where it's, you know, your people like to think that they're their own nation, but really this is American land and you're going to be American. And it was, you know, the, the phrase of like, teach the Indian out of the yeah. child or save the save the child from the Indian within, right? You know, we're we're, we're going to make you a, a good American and we have very specific ideas of what a good American is or a good Canadian, you know. The school system is set up expressly to indoctrinate children into being okay with the kind of authority that the state power, like the the kind of authority, right, uh, supported by the state power, right. Um. <laughs> and this is all now sounding like I really hate schools, <laughs> and I don't. I love schools. That's clearly why I stayed in the. Mo- for all of my entire life, but uh, there is a problem with this formal education, and you see the specific critiques of that. If you look, if we do go back to the progressive movement and we look at the anarchists mm. and communists who are writing at the time, again, I'm going to pitch them in Coleman, who wrote a lot about education and creating education that is run by students and is a place for exploration and critical thinking as opposed to memorization yeah and i i do think that there's so you know not to um yeah like i've also stayed at school just forever and you know i i don't want to um you know be too disparaging because i'm also like, yes, on one hand, I mean, universal education, fantastic, great idea. Um, but yeah, there's definitely something to be said yeah. about how do we present this type of education and how do we, you know, what what exactly are we teaching? And I, I do think that there's, you know, it... It's encouraging seeing that at least to some degree there's, you know, there have been small incremental changes over time towards looking more at, like, childhood development and how children actually learn. And, you know, I I hope Mm -hmm. that uh, that continues in the future. And I, uh, yeah, I mean, this school year is obviously going to be very strange for everyone (laughs) yeah so yeah and so like what i have been sort of thinking about with this is like 
we're at a moment where schooling is probably going to change forever. And, you know, I think it's a time to reflect on, right, these issues of schooling, but also the ways that we talk about why schooling is valuable, right? Because we talk about it in terms of the citizen and the worker and these ways that, like, all of these things, these these ways that people yes. can be valuable to the state and to capitalism whereas we what i you know and this is you know me spouting obviously political opinions but this could be a time where we reevaluate the school system and look at the school system and say education is valuable and universal education is valuable because people are valuable and knowledge is valuable. And that's it. People have a right to know things because they're humans, you know? Like, everyone has the right to come from this, the basis, the same basis of knowledge. That if there's knowledge out there, yes, everyone has a right to it. And that it is valuable exactly. in and, and of itself not just for the productivity that that knowledge can <laughs> and yeah i know, think there's also just something to be said about you know learning things that are are not necessarily ever going to be um you know financially useful for you I say as a person studying medieval history, but I mean, and genuinely, the, the like you, you see how quick schools are to cut, <laughs> you know, music programs and art programs and, and these things that we're now, you know, slowly realize people are kind of realizing like, oh, actually kids who learn how to play music, like there's a lot of benefits to learning music. There's a lot of benefits to letting kids like paint and draw and have these outlets for creativity and like you know it's it's this very like yeah i think we we also yeah. need to broaden what knowledge is the the value of of mm -hmm. yeah and the value of like critical thinking skills but an early school system doesn't want to teach critical thinking skills because then people are going to be like you know start thinking critically about the state and about state power and state violence and you know uh, the the vast disparity like the vast wealth disparity and <laughs> is Jeff Bezos doing anything to earn well Devin it's because dollars? he works 200 Ooh, billion times harder than the rest not. of us <laughs> So like yeah, I mean you know critical thinking is critical thinking and and universal knowledge bases and the the equity of of knowledge is dangerous to the state. So there's there's that you know the the radical education is part of a radical movement. Well, is where where I'm at with that. <laughs> That's those those are my conclusions from this is that we should we should utterly reform 
all primary and secondary education and focus on, you know, teaching the process of learning so that people can be lifelong learners and so and, and they can the think critically thing, about the information that they're getting. And, yeah, and I, the other you know, thing is, I mean, it's things. never too late to become a lifelong learner either. I mean, you know, I we, yeah, we, we've yeah, been yeah. roasting, you know, these libraries, but genuinely, I mean, go take advantage of it. Some Some rich person made a library go go read things you oh know? no L- libraries libraries are excellent there should be libraries everywhere there should be more libraries than there are starbucks and i love them they're one of the only safe like third spaces like free third spaces so a place other than where you go to work for money and yeah like it, it's live, one of the few you know your domestic life a third space is like the other space but it's it's free it's a it's a yeah like libraries are one of the few places where you're like, allowed to exist without spending it's full money of books <laughs> and 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 the also internet. there's often lots of yeah and there's books there's the internet there's and people uh, to help i i would also navigate books in the internet it's yeah i i would also add the most democratic um, in the world. community centers as well there's a lot of the time um you know, I mean, it's not necessarily yes. free, but there's usually low-cost um, classes from in everything from, you know, uh, playing musical instruments. There's art classes. There's, yeah, there's language classes. There's, language like, all classes. kinds of different things that you can learn, you know, like, f- for free or for cheap in your communities, there's also, I mean, if you go looking for it, there's lots of groups out there that do like, you know, we, we're a group that likes beekeeping and we like meet to do that. Or we're a group that does, you know, yeah, whatever, whatever thing you might be interested in. And I think it's, you know, going into this September, it, it there is a lot to rethink about education for children, but also for like, you know, yeah, and like how we, spaces you know, as adults can continue to learn new things and develop new skills and, you know, just just have this ability to keep keep doing new things and trying out new things. Yeah, so I think I think yes. that should Conclusion. be our our like. You know, for the past few for the past few episodes, we've like said, "Here's what you can do to like acknowledge yeah. or celebrate this time in our year." So, like, this is our going back to school time, and even if you're an adult who's not in school and not going back to school or not a teacher or something like that, uh, this could be a great time to get a library card or join your community center or start taking a class or you know go to a go to your, you know, town hall meeting about, like, funding for community education and the library and stuff like that, or volunteer at your library. Exactly. There's lots of ways. One of those kinds of things, like, get involved. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to be involved in public education and to, you know, build community around this idea of learning new things and sharing the knowledge that you have. 
And on that note, thank you so much for joining us. You can check out the blog for more information about seasonal rituals and history. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, it means a lot. And also, if you have the means, consider supporting us on Patreon. We have exclusive merch, and it would really help us to expand the project. As always, stay safe and do good work. Junction, junction, what's your